Hello, and welcome to this episode and a special set of episodes of the Decarceration Nation podcast from the Smart on Crime Innovations Conference in New York City. I say we because I'm thrilled that our web guru, Robert Alvarez, was able to join me in New York City for the conference. As a result, Robert and I got to interview several thought leaders in the criminal justice reform field. The episode you are about to hear is one of a series of five interviews, which we'll be releasing over the next two and a half weeks. Each episode will be intentionally shorter than our normal episodes running from, they'll probably be running between 20 and 30 minutes. Okay, here we go. I hope you enjoy these special Decarceration Nation podcast episodes from the 2019 Smart on Crime Conference. Actually show that government can do this. Um, and then when it doesn't, we actually know <laughs> the reason why. Um, it no longer is a question of can, it's just will you. Um, and then democracy, we have a voice to change that. And so, um, and so then that's another element. Uh, so um, it so doesn't really answer your question. It does, though. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a good bridge. Uh, so then we get to the question, I mean, you talk... It sounds like you've been, on, to some extent, on both sides of the legal process. Uh, you've dealt with a lot of different situations. You've gone through this. You come to Code to America. Expungement comes up. Had you had a lot of experience with people not being able to clear their records? Or was that a new thing for you? Or Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've, um, I've actually never practiced either in public, uh, as a public defender or a prosecutor. What I've seen is uh, uh, the various ways in which the system shows up in, in the conditions that it's created for people and what people are struggling through. Um, and so, uh, and so under, understanding, under, uh, understanding that. Um, I think in, uh, um, I hadn't worked in, in expungement or clean slate, so I'm not a practitioner coming into this. What I am is someone who sees process um, and, and systems and, and sees when a process, as I said on a panel yesterday, is utter bullshit. <laughs> um, and and that, that when we, so what I have practice in is I'm a former legal aid lawyer um, in addition to doing policy advocacy work. And I, I actually served on a committee um, in California, uh, the Committee for the Delivery of, of Legal Services. And part of the work was to improve the way that improve access to justice on the civil and the criminal side. But we were really focused actually on the civil side and improving access to, to legal services and access to justice. Um, and what I quickly came to realize that what we were focused on were forms <laughs> and process and paper and, and, uh, and imagine if we had um, brought and were trained as lawyers in user-centered design when we're thinking about process, and we're always um, holding ourselves to the rigorous standard of making sure you're solving the right problem as opposed to offering solutions for problems that you're now in search of. And so so I came, you know, in coming to Code for America, uh, the team had been, you know, it's very easy to digitize processes. It's very easy. At the end of the day, we can digitize any form, we can digitize any process. What takes more challenges to question why the process exists at all. And so I think the moment it became clear that um, uh, uh, government is at the ready and has sufficient data um, uh, to arrest someone, to charge someone, to convict someone, to incarcerate someone, um, and it feels like it does not have that ability when it's to provide post-conviction relief. And that is just not true. It should do none of the former, 
and it most certainly, given the harm it has done, do the latter. Um, and the idea that government cannot provide that service uh, to folks is just, it's false. Yeah, and it's interesting. I've actually been in some discussions with you where uh, people were pushing back about the idea that these processes could be done. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seemed pretty obvious that maybe they aren't considering that they're already doing it. Is that exactly. what you've experienced? That's Is right. That the- That's right. Yeah, This um, the effort to make conviction relief automatic is not a modernization effort. What's true is that the, the, the process to get uh, relief is not designed for the digital age, as we say at Code for America. It isn't designed to actually serve everyone. It's designed to serve anyone who can get through the uh, roller coaster sort of um, field day of the petition-based process. But it's not designed to serve everyone. And and the government has the capacity to, to actually serve everyone um, today. And a lot, it seems like a lot of the, the ways that it that we know it's possible is because they're using those already. Is that correct? They just aren't using them for the right thing is what you're saying? That's right. That's right. So in some instances, um, so for example, in in Michigan, Michigan's already ensuring at a statewide level that non-convictions don't show up. Um, on background checks. We see this across the country. There are ways in which um, uh, the states are already providing um, some form of relief. They're implementing existing laws at scale. Um, We also see this in the consumer side, right? When we are looking at our our consumer credit report, we know now as norms, after seven years, things fall off. We know that it no longer should show up on the credit uh, report. And when it does, there is a method by which to get it removed or to challenge why it's still there. And here it seems so puzzling how that could be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, this is the, the, the harm here is when convictions are showing up in uh, consumer background checks, when they're blocking uh, the ability to create the conditions by which people can thrive in housing, in employment, in education, and in, in working in, with your kids in, in all of these various ways. And, and that is... You know, that is ultimately how we engage as consumers in the marketplace, how we engage as participants in our civil society. And so um, we've we not only have done it before, we do it. We've government has done, you know, provided this level of um, of restricted access in so many different ways um, that uh, uh, that it can certainly do it here. Uh, you know, it's a weird to bring this up in this context, but you talked about user-assisted design. And I, I remember reading in the Isaac, Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs about how uh, they brought an iPad to a kid who had never touched a computer before and immediately they could figure out how to use it. Mm-hmm. Is In a sense, is that uh, your vi- you talked about democratizing these things. Is that part of yours or Code for America's vision for how to... Uh, bring processes that have always been mysterious, far away, bureaucratic, to make them more user-friendly in that sense? or Mm. Um, It's uh, first identifying what's the user need. So uh, in California, Code for America um, serves as the in, provides the intake application for folks applying for SNAP benefits um, uh, to ensure food security. And so the user need is that I need to be able to access my SNAP benefits um, on my phone at my convenience and uh, very quickly. Um, the, the state built an entire um, uh, machinery that um, cost several hundred millions of dollars 
and a website was the result that took 45 minutes to complete and asked incredibly invasive questions um, to evaluate whether someone should access this benefit um, that they are entitled to. Um, so when we go to the user and we center the user need, the user is trying to get the benefit to purchase food. Um, we need to make it very user-friendly. User-friendly means I need to be able to pick it up, understand what is going on, um, and move through it very quickly because everyone has very busy lives. Um, and it needs to be available to me at my convenience, not at the convenience of, of government. I should not have to jump through hoops in order to um, access my own government. And so Code for America um, created uh, Get CalFresh. Um, it is a digital form, a digital process that takes, um, instead of 45 minutes, takes eight minutes instead of a couple hundred million dollars, four million dollars, to serve over a million people and growing in California in every county and consistently. And that is what we mean by um, where government is delivering services that center the user. What that means is um, uh, services are better because they're solving the right problem um, and better costs less because you're solving the right problem. And better also means that we're serving people with dignity and respect. And so then we actually, um, part of the effect of that is a, a rebuilding of trust or a first time building of trust uh, with our government. It's interesting because uh, having gone through a few uh, battles over SNAP and Medicaid in Michigan, uh, I know that a lot of the reasons why those things happen are are essentially political questions. Mm -hmm. How did you all? How are? How have you all been able to circumvent kind of the reasons why uh, the political class seems to want to? make those forms so invasive. And in other words, yes, I understand why your process works a lot better. It's not hard to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> why. But you still have to somehow get the government to allow that to happen. So how have you all been successful in kind of yeah. walking the, 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 the tightrope there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all of, um, uh, it all sits within a political context, um, and everything has a, has a propensity to be politicized. Um, at the end end of the day, um, efficiency in government, as we say at Code for America, is a matter of social justice. Um, uh, the services that we rely on government to provide are the most critical, most important services. And when they are uh, burdened by process for the sake of process, that is a matter of equity and social justice. And so, and when you ask users who are constituents, who are voters, um, what they need, and you are able to do that user research and have the data that shows that government um, choices are uh, are not only inefficient, they're cost ineffective, they're costing dramatically more. Um, uh, that that uh, is compelling to to the to the political audience, um, who often says they're driven by. Uh, by those, by that. Um, and, uh, you know, user-centered design helps to surface and, and center the, um, the real experience. Otherwise, we continue in the, and politics will continue to operate in hypotheticals um, and in edge cases that never, that, that just don't exist. And so, um, uh, and so that helps to actually also um, center it in reality, um, which is important. But what we've seen is... Um, uh, 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 is, you know, is that efficiency and, um, and the need that, that, uh, you know, without 
staking claim to what efficiency ought to do. Um, uh, um, you know, we're left with, with not only two tiers of government, two tiers of services, continuous entrenchment of, of the, the various classes of who has access and who doesn't. So you've, you, you all have been involved with kind of the expansion of, uh, of what it, some people have called clean slate, other people expunge on other people's set-asides, the clearance of public criminal records in several states where all of you uh, been involved so far. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Code for America, we, you know, started, um, uh, in the world of, of record clearance in 2016 in California, um, uh, looking to connect people with lawyers. And the user need that we heard most predominantly through our user research is if I have, uh, uh, convictions in different counties, I not only have to go to each of those courtrooms, I actually have to find lawyers in each of those counties who, who will file the paperwork for me. And in order to do that, I have to go to the lawyer um, during their business hours or during their clinic hours. And I can't do that. I've moved out of state. I've moved to a different county, I, you know, whatever that may be. And so we created an online intake form uh, that connects individuals to lawyers across counties to say, I have convictions in multiple counties. Um, uh, I would like your help in navigating that process. And what we quickly found in, um, after continuing to do user research uh, is um, there aren't enough lawyers to serve everyone who is eligible. In California, there are an estimated 8 million people with criminal records. We're able to connect 12,000 people with attorneys who will then have much better odds in navigating the process. But that is not even, a, that's the tiniest drop in the bucket when we're thinking about um, relief under California law. And so wanting to think differently about, about that process. And the, the work that we, we launched last year with the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, after hearing, you know, their office wanted to take an affirmative position. They wanted to say, look, or they did say, look, we are going to take a proactive act and move proactively on uh, clearing marijuana convictions because we can, because we should, and um, because a new marketplace is being created and the very folks who have been criminalized um, uh, are now shut out from that marketplace. And so no one can talk about equity until we resolve this at scale. And so as they made that announcement, we had started to build some technology to, to understand we can't create new lawyers. Um, this isn't an issue that we can throw more lawyers at, um, uh, at, the, at the issue. And so we started to create, we created some early, early technology that would um, uh, read a state criminal record, evaluate eligibility under state law, and then generate any paperwork. And in the, the marriage between um, that early technology with uh, the position of saying we need to do this affirmatively with San Francisco District Attorney, that has... Um, uh, sparked momentum across the country and in California to say you're that's right <laughs> we sh we ought to and we should and now what we've shown is you can and the most important thing that we've shown is that it doesn't while we have built technology that that has shown that it is possible and helps to do it it's not fancy technology um, we ultimately are able to read criminal history data in bulk evaluate it against uh, uh, state law, so evaluate eligibility, and then generate the output that then is uh, um, ingested back into the system so that records are updated. And states can do this across the country. Counties can do this um, within their jurisdictions if there isn't a state law. 
and um, and it needs to be expansive. And so that laid the groundwork for legislation that then was introduced this year um, that expands it further um, uh, for both misdemeanors and felony at the completion of, of sentence. Um, and so uh, states like Michigan, uh, uh, states like Illinois in relation to uh, marijuana, and uh, North Carolina is considering uh, this as well, and, um, and others. And it's really exciting to see because, um, you know, when we make promises about reforms and don't actually think through the, the implementation as advocates, we, uh, we have a responsibility to think through the implementation um, uh, because uh, um, it just doesn't work otherwise, in my opinion. Yeah. So we've had certainly, uh, I'm sure in the other places that you've done this, there were people probably saying, hey, we can't do this or whatever. How have the results started to uh, play out? Have people started to see how it works and kind of change the way they look at the whole process yet? Or yeah. are we still too early in that to yeah. have moved many mountains, so yeah. to speak? Yeah. You know, when Pennsylvania passed the Clean Slate Act and um, the courts and the repository there started to plan for it, um, that movement started to, to actually show, uh, the movement in uh, coming out of Pennsylvania started to show, oh yeah, this is possible. One, it's possible for two agencies to talk to one another and <laughs> think through how to implement an important reform at scale. Um, and that's incredible. And it's and it's and uh, it really has set the stage for this work um, nationally. In California, the work with San Francisco DA uh, led to a five-county pilot that includes uh, Sacramento, Contra Costa, um, San Joaquin, and Los Los Angeles. And what we've seen is uh, that laid the groundwork for legislation that was then signed into law um, under Governor Brown that said every county needs to do this. You need to expedite review for marijuana convictions. That then laid the, the groundwork for uh, the bill that was introduced and in sitting on the California governor's uh, desk now, which says not only we're not only going to do it at the county level, we're going to do it at the state level um, for broader convictions, more convictions beyond marijuana. Um, and so what we, um, you know, it really draws the line between can't and won't, um, and uh, and that's an important line to draw because uh, then there are other measures in place um, when constituents' voices aren't being heard by their elected officials. Um, there is a process by which we uh, uh, we as voters need to change that, and so um, and so we see this across across the country. Um, whether you are a state with a centralized court system or a decentralized court system, you are a state that has a centralized criminal history repository who has access to that data, who has access to court records. Um, how do we restrict that, the, that access so they're not barriers to jobs, housing, and um, uh, education and other, and other opportunities? And, um, and, uh, and so we see this as possible um, in every state across the country. Robert, did you have a question maybe? Um, just, I was thinking about the, how do you get this implemented? So you mentioned the California example where uh, the governor can, you know, either request that the pilot happen and include multiple counties, but is it that you go county to county trying to persuade them, or do you find a centralized person who then kind of dictates to the other counties? Yeah. Um, you know, in California, it wasn't that we didn't get permission. He lives in California. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. We didn't get permission from the governor um, uh, because we didn't need it. Uh, uh, in California, we wanted to show what's possible. So for Code for America, when we think about how to improve uh, the delivery of services, uh, what we want to be able to do is show that it's possible to, for services to be delivered differently. And once you see what's possible, you actually, you're rethinking your entire 
reality and, and the processes that exist to support that reality. And then we want to be able to help government do this work themselves. And so we had identified a five-county pilot to show a state as large as California. Any county in this state can do this. And uh, whether you're as large as LA or as small as, as, as Contra Costa County in the Bay Area, you can do this work um, uh, at, at the varying degrees of, of scale, of complexity. Um, and ultimately, um, conviction relief uh, uh, ought to be done at the state level uh, because it's a matter of policy. And so those policy choices that are put into um, put into law, whether codified by the legislature or passed by voters, um, we need to implement them. And so we can't, as advocates, ignore the machinery of government when we pass reforms. We actually actually engage in that implementation. So when we think about implementation, what we're looking at is who are the state agencies who have the data, um, what are the uh, criteria for eligibility, time, conviction type is what it ought to be, and based on that very simple math problem, um, uh, uh, you, in, you, you write a script that can run the data, you identify the eligible, you make the changes um, on the convictions, uh, on the records, and, uh, um, uh, and, and, and then those records are whatever legal effect is available under law, that legal effect is then applied. So whether it's a set-aside expungement, dismissal, vacator, whatever that might be, that legal effect is set aside. What's critical, though, is that we are looking at convictions and, um, and ensuring that the legal remedies that are applied to those convictions are the ones that are holding folks back from jobs and housing and other opportunities. It's very easy for every state in this country to um, ensure non-access to arrests. That is important. What is more important is the ability to ensure that the um, convictions that are truly holding folks back from jobs that pay a living wage, from securing stable housing, from engaging in your kids' education and investing in your own are, are the ones um, that we're that we're invested in and talking about providing automatic um, conviction relief for. Yeah, what you what you mentioned about people who are in for marijuana convictions in California, and then the new industry popping up and people making money off it. I heard so much about this and not a lot of discussion. I actually moved from California to DC, and kind of that whole discussion kind of fell uh, out of my out of my vision because I was preoccupied, but. Uh, yeah, I was really excited when I heard you talking about that in your presentation earlier. And it also made me think, um, you, you mentioned briefly that there are other things beside marijuana convictions that are being discussed. Can you talk about what some of those other types of convictions up for expungement are? are? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, every state will get to, get to decide from our vantage point at the, at the end of the day, any conviction type, um, uh, ought to be given autom- uh, conviction relief. And so whatever that might look Will look like um, what we see in states is a vast majority of um, of uh, convictions are predominantly related to drugs um, uh, and to property, and so let's think through what that might look like. Um, for Code for America, what we are looking to do is to expand eligibility um, uh, uh, and to ensure that automatic that conviction relief is provided automatically. So marijuana presents particularly right now, an opportunity to um, uh, to provide conviction relief because a, a, literally a new marketplace is, is popping up and folks um, are very much barred from, from that marketplace. And so as cities across the country are trying to think about how do we create equity around this new marketplace that we're now trying to regulate, how do we ensure equal access or equitable access to this marketplace, um, they have a responsibility to ensure that those that have been harmed by the war on drugs, those that have been criminalized by the war on drugs, arbitrarily um, uh, 
they need the government needs to remedy those wrongs in a multiple ways, and one of the ways is conviction relief. But that's true across uh, across conviction types, right? Given the history of the criminal justice system, um, uh, um, from every part of the system, and so uh, it it's um, post conviction relief is. Uh, um, uh, irrespective of conviction type. It should happen because of the way our system ought to be working. So we're at the Smart on Crime Innovations Conference here in New York City. Uh, you presented, and uh, what, what are your takeaways from your experience here so far, if any? Yeah. Um, it's my first time at the conference. Me too. Great. Oh, really? It's yeah. a great conference. Um, you know, there is uh, the most, um, one of the most important takeaways um, you know, coming back to the top of the, the questions uh, that you asked, um, is uh, uh, that I'm struck by is who who is centered in this work, but I think more importantly, um, uh, um, who is making decisions um, in this work. And I think uh, the example um, uh, um, that Desmond Mead gave in uh, the most recent presentation in the plenary um, is the one that... The, the person who is feeling the pain and the harm is the one that is going to most clearly be able to articulate uh, uh, when relief comes. Um, and uh, and those who have not experienced that pain and that harm, um, uh, our, our best role is, is in um, allyship at most um, and in support uh, and in understanding um, and in understanding that. Um, and so I just, I, that, that, um, that is true. It's always been true um, in this work, and it's true across issues. Every policy that's being set, whether whether we're talking about um, policies related to the safety net, policies related to education, policies in criminal justice, those who are directly impacted by those policies ought to be making decisions. I think um, uh, too much is at stake to have folks who are completely disconnected from the ramifications of the choices that they are making uh, to be making those choices. That just doesn't work. Yeah, it's a great answer, and thanks so much for doing this. We're really glad you could take the time. Thanks for having me. Yep, thank you. Hope you enjoyed that special episode of Decarceration Nation. Any content from the Smart on Crime Conference was courtesy of the Center for American Progress, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. And make sure to check out our new t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hats. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and to Robert Alvarez, who's been helping with the website. Thanks so much for listening to Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.